everyone and welcome back to VLGA Connect. It is Friday, which means it's time for the Governance Update, brought to you by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. And joining me from what appears to be a different location this week is Stephen Cooper. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Chris. How are you? And um, yeah, it is a different location. Thanks for noticing. Um, due to the inadequacies of my IT, you just get curtains at the moment. <laughs> um, but I'm in beautiful Hobart, Tasmania. Now that explains why the uh, the veiled references or the not so veiled references to the wonderful city of Hobart over the past few weeks. It was probably very childish on my part, Chris, but there is a bit going on in Hobart that we've been able to talk about anyway. So um, that's been just a coincidence, I suppose. And and one of the one of the things we had hoped to do while you were in Hobart was have join you there, the uh, the CEO of Hobart, former CEO of Wyndham City, uh, Kelly Grigsby. But I understand she heard you were on your way and she's left town. Purely a coincidence, I'm sure, Chris, because <laughs> I, I thought we'd had a very pleasant conversation. <laughs> These things happen. These things. No, unfortunately, Kelly can't join us, but she will join us uh, very, very soon, as in in the in the near future, for for a catch up on how things are going down there. So, are we allowed to ask why you're in Hobart? Um, just a, a long weekend, Chris, and as luck would have it, um, in fact, we've been invited to a wedding. So, uh, good chance to a get away and b share in a happy occasion. Fabulous. All right. Well, you enjoy that. and I'm, I'm pleased that you've managed to squeeze in some time to talk to us for the governance update while you're technically on uh, on holidays, by the sounds of it. <laughs> Wouldn't miss it, Chris. Biggest day, yeah. biggest day of my week. <laughs> now, there is a bit to talk about, of course, as always. Last week on the program, we spoke to Tony Ranich from Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. He gave us the rundown on what the new decriminalisation of sex work legislation means for councils. That's a conversation that's been happening in a few locations of late, I understand, Steve. Yeah, true, Chris, and and probably a couple of um, really key themes. As Tony touched on, that the legislation has been changed, and now government is going through the process of further consultation with a view to um, the preparation of some regulation. Um, interesting, Chris, and I I can go in a couple of different directions. I understand you've had a conversation um, separately that you'll be pursuing. Uh, fairly soon. It's in, it's in fact out today, Steve. I know you're a bit distracted because you're you're technically not working at the moment, but uh, I, I did have a, a good long chat with Matthew Roberts, who's the policy advisor at the Sex Work Law Reform Victoria organisation. Um, they've been looking for this sort of reform for quite some time and uh, right across the way different councils have been approaching this issue historically. So they've got a pretty clear picture in their mind of what they want to see happen um, as this new legislation comes in. And as you say, as the regulations get determined, it's uh, it's about a two-year process, I think, for, for all of it to be phased in. Yeah. But uh, one of the interesting things that Matthew spoke to me about was a bit of confusion still around different councils that he's been speaking to about what this really means for councils. So I, I think perhaps there's still a bit of work to do to, to, to make that or bring that clarity to the issue for councils. It's always a good start, Chris, to be able to work out what you're in control of and what you're not. And the reality is that government of the day has made a decision regarding the decriminalisation of sex work. And um, I think um, all strength to you for interviewing people like Matthew, because sometimes we get a bit stuck on talking to people in our own sector and not the stakeholders. And um, useful to hear from a stakeholder group who have been advocating pretty hard on, on this topic. Um, I, in fact, similarly to you, Chris, I had... Um, 
the experience during the week of going to a remote meeting convened by the Department of Justice, I believe, um, in regard to the process from here. And there were some interesting questions, although I think most councils are alert to the fact that, you know, the substantive changes have occurred. Still a bit of confusion around local laws and what might that mean where we're regulating business but not regulating sex work for what might seem to be similar activities. But I think people will just need to kind of get their heads around that. And then, as you said, the uncertainty regarding um, the impact of regulations when they're made. Steve, I wonder if enough has been done at this point or if, if this will be an issue to bring elected representatives up to the same level of clarity that, that, that officers are. I know that'll happen in individual councils, but I can see a situation where politically some councils are going to be less inclined than others to really embrace the intent of this legislation. Is that fair? Yeah, funny you mention that, Chris. And there was an interesting bit of byplay that occurred during the meeting where uh, one staff member from... Uh, a council who shall remain nameless uh, reported to the meeting um, some concerns about the legislation and the fact that uh, that particular the group of councillors would be quite furious to hear what had what had been um, passed and um, in fact this person was quite fearful of going to the councillor briefing and it really struck me Chris as um, a, a cultural issue is that it should never be a situation where a council officer reporting back on a decision of the government of the day should be fearful about reporting that to their council. Really, the, the question for their council is, is it something they want to advocate on? Uh, is it an issue where there is a service response that they need to make a decision on? Uh, is it a resourcing issue? You know, and those need to be pretty arm's length, um, unemotional kind of uh, conversations, I would have thought. Yeah, good point. We often talk about the role of the officer to bring the frank and fearless advice to the council. And here's an example where, you know, they should be able to do that in a fearless way. Well, yeah, and I, it wouldn't bode well, I would think, in terms of the cultural impact, if that is the, the prevailing, I'm not saying it is, who knows, but if that were to be the prevailing culture of the organisation, that would have a range of other impacts, Chris, in terms of frank and fearless, people's ability to be psychologically safe to speak up. It's a, you know, it's a really big good governance topic. All right, keep an eye on that one. And uh, if you get a chance, folks, check out uh, the special edition of the Local Government News Roundup, which dropped today for a, a long-form discussion about the, uh, the implications uh, of that legislation. Steve, some big stories around uh, this week. Uh, last time, this time last week, uh, we were mulling over the prospect of a rates exemption for social housing in metropolitan areas, particularly in Victoria. Lots of councils mobilised with uh, data on what that would mean. Um, sector bodies certainly became involved in that conversation as well. Um, obviously, the property sector has been running a completely different sort of argument about the reforms with the government. Um, ultimately, the whole thing's gone away. Um, I, I did not think we'd be sitting here one week later saying it's dead in the water, but it is. Uh, no, the... Um... I mean, you and I have um, have made a joke before about the fact that you, one of the council term, is the time to be a courageous minister, and um, one can only sort of wonder if about the impact of the fact that there's a state election on, in November. Yes, and and uh, the government's made it pretty clear that this package of reforms will not be coming back, even if they are re-elected in November. So yeah, we can turn think... that one to history. We will, and I think, Chris, it's an interesting one because the social housing issue hasn't gone away. Yeah. 
Um, and I think the other issue for local government is the fact that there was a preparedness to um, erode the rate base really points to the need for some ongoing advocacy beyond the sort of quality of conversation that we see in the daily newspapers. True. All right, we'll leave that one there. Um, you're right, though, the social housing and the affordable housing issue is not solved, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about uh, plans to try and um, address that in different a ways. Actually, Chris, can I just make a bit of diversion apropos the weather? Sure. And housing, and, and that, actually this was a bit unplanned, but it's really been interesting this week in terms of housing. One of the issues is the availability of land. And when you see the impact of flooding in New South Wales and Queensland in areas that have been approved for development, um, we've made the point um, in this show before, and certainly we're not the only ones, about the fact that there is a really important role for local government in its planning to make sure that development is fit for purpose. Just thought I'd throw that one in. Well, I'm glad you did because I had forgotten to put on our running sheet for today any comment about uh, the floods, but I've been watching the way councils are responding in Queensland and in New South Wales. And, you know, quite aside from the fact that it's tragic, it's devastating, uh, lots of people's lives are being affected in, in really serious ways. To see the way local government mobilises to help their communities is, is an amazing thing to watch. Some of the examples that we're seeing I think just really brings home or should bring home to people the power, the value of that level of government that is closest to the people. Yeah, I think it's a really important issue, Chris, because it's never popular when council stifles the opportunity for people to develop land at less than what they think is the optimal value. But I think when we're in this, um, this type of environment and particularly with the impacts of climate change, it goes to show why those controls are important. All right. Um, another big story this week, Steve, that's playing out in Melbourne, in Bayside, in fact, is the issue of political signage. I'm sure you've uh, been following this. So we've got the Tim Wilson versus Zoe Daniels issue in relation to um, signage. Uh, and we've had uh, Bayside reverse its position on whether those Zoe Daniels signs are legal based on advice from the AEC about the potential timing of the election. Mm, I am really torn on this one, I've got to say, Chris, and I start with the premise that the CEO at Bayside, Mick Cummins, is a highly experienced CEO who is really good on the governance stuff. Mm -hmm. And also, I'd be interested to run a competition between Bayside, Port Phillip and Burundara as to who has the most SCs and QCs, like lawyers per square kilometre. So, like, Bayside have a really well-informed community and, and they're planning staff would be absolutely on their mettle. So I'm, I am reluctant to um, depart from their view, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> do you? Oh, okay, here we go. Controversy alert. Uh, I'm looking to JLF in the studio for alarm bells. <laughs> Where do you diverge, Steve? Uh, I've got to say, Chris, and, and, it, and uh, actually, let, let's have one more caveat while we're doing caveats. Um, it is the court that will have all of the information and will make an informed decision. I think the rest of us are just mug punters. So, you know, we've got opinions and that's fine. My sort of uh, premise on this is from a couple of points. One is that, and we've talked about it before, the Planning and Environment Act is a really poor piece of legislation if your objective is enforcement. It's kind of premised on the basis of finding ways to do whatever development you've got. And in this case, it's a sign. The thing I wonder about is if we're talking about the amenity of a sign and someone put up a sign, for example, 
this week with a Ukrainian flag and a slogan that wasn't offensive, would anyone mind? If it was a sign for a school fate, would anyone mind? And I, particularly in a context around human right to political expression, I, I really question um, the sort of efficacy of using the Planning Environment Act to sort of um, control that. Now, we don't want um, electoral signs going berserk, but I, I'll be really interested in what the court says about, well, why can't um, people put up a sign for three months and then apply for a permit if they want it to be there for longer? And, and that's the bit I can't get my head around. But as I said, I, I say that with all respect to the Bayside City Council because I suspect whatever they've determined, there's a pretty good reason. Yeah, so just to be clear, the reason for the change of position was the understanding that the election would be held by the third week of May, therefore the signs were within that three-month mm. window. The advice from the AEC is that it's technically possible that the House of Representatives doesn't go to election until September. That would mean the two houses are elected separately. Separately. Looks unlikely, has happened, uh, I, I believe. It is, uh, it is a mathematical possibility, Chris. Correct. So on that basis, that's, that's why they've determined then that, well, therefore, we're not in that three-month window of when the election could potentially, the latest date the election could potentially occur. Of course, yeah. Zoe Daniel and uh, her lawyers are running the argument that the council is stifling political uh, discourse uh, and other councils have taken a different view. Uh, that's part of their argument. So as you say, that'll play out in the court and we'll wait with interest to well, see where it lands. Exactly. And just for clarity, Chris, that's, you, you touched on this, that the, the, the purpose or what is in court is Zoe Daniel and her team seeking an order by the court that would prevent the council from taking enforcement action, if you like. Yes. Words to that effect. All right. An interesting one, uh, nevertheless, and we'll keep a close eye on it. I'm sure we'll come back to it, Steve. I think we shall. Now, um, we've had an election result this week, the by-election at Yarra Ranges in Streeton Ward. Andrew Fullagar has been elected after the distribution of preferences. He had 55% of the vote against uh, Will Mickelson's, who had just on 45% of the vote. So I'm not sure if Andrew's been sworn in yet. I think I saw a statement from Yarra Rangers uh, today welcoming him, so perhaps he has. So we say hello and welcome to our newest councillor, Councillor Fullagard. And congratulations, and congratulations to all the candidates for um, agreeing to continue to put themselves forward for office. I think that's terrific. Yes, and that was to fill a vacancy created by Catherine Burnett-Wake being um, uh, elected to or, or appointed to, I think is the term, to the Legislative Council. Um, here's another one I reckon that you'd be taking a keen interest in, uh, Steve, given your background. Uh, the City of Stonington taking legal action over the loss of a heritage property in Windsor. This uh, cottage constructed in 1855 apparently was one of the oldest and rarest in the municipality. There was a planning permit for part demolition and an extension, but last month or earlier this month, the whole thing has disappeared and the council's pretty upset about it. Yeah, so it disappeared contrary to a partial demolition permit, I understand, Chris, that was right. in place. Isn't it interesting how post the Corkman Hotel, this topic of demolition beyond what's been approved under the Planning Environment Act has really got ahead of steam. Um, and I think most people would say all strengths to the Stonington City Council with their action on this one. Um, certainly, 
at the VLGA, there's an upper house review, which I believe has been stalled um, due to workload issues uh, on um, the compliance elements of the Planning and Environment Act. And we certainly submitted on this question that there's a need for review to um, include some mechanisms whereby um, developers or those doing the demolition can't profit by way of doing that. The penalty should equate and make it not a uh, not an economic proposition, we believe. Yes, because the casual observer would say, well, it's gone now. It, surely it can't be put back and still be an original 1855 heritage property. But the, uh, the intent, I understand, of the council's action is a step towards reclaiming and reinstating the building. One would have thought that perhaps not possible. Well, or it might be a rather expensive proposition, Chris, to engage a heritage architect and to do that in a way that's compliant. So, you know, all strength to the council, I yes. think. All right. So that's coming before the tribunal in late March. And speaking of court action, we have a lot of legal stuff. This oh. We've been following that New South Wales Supreme Court case that the electoral commissioner in that state has brought in relation to three council election results from last December. Um, the two-day hearing occurred last week. As far as I'm aware, there's been no uh, judgment delivered yet. The, uh, the judgment was reserved or the justice reserved his decision. But what he did say, which was interesting, according to how this was reported on the ABC, Steve, is that if there's a declaration to void those elections, it's unlikely that would happen this side of a federal election. I wasn't sure about the, the link unless he's looking forward to when a, when a subsequent election would be conducted. Um, no, that's an interesting one because there were some... Um, no, I'm just trying to work out the link unless it was just a marker in time, Chris. <laughs> it's eluded me. Which would assume the justice knows when the federal election is going to happen too, because well, hang on, we don't. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, is he um, thinking September? <laughs> we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on uh, that one. Now, before we wrap up, uh, a couple of big events coming up for the VLGA, and I know they're proving um, very popular as far as bookings are going. How's the fast track session on the 18th of March looking? Is it full? Uh, not quite, Chris. There are five spots left. Oh. Um, as at um, about 30 minutes ago when I checked just before we came on. So if anyone wants to go get in quickly, can I say, um, I actually haven't spoken to the Minister because he doesn't need a pre-briefing from me, but I've certainly um, spoken with all of the members of all of our three panels and the hypothetical, and um, really looking forward to the day. It is going to be terrific. So um, yeah, if anyone, any councillors are thinking of coming along, get in quickly. Excellent. That's only two weeks away and I'll be there as well. I'm really looking forward to that. And um, I assume we'll be doing the governance update on on location, uh, Steve, if I've, we can find the time during a busy day. I've got to write a run sheet, Chris. I better remember to put that in. <laughs> and uh, this coming Monday, there's an International Women's Day morning tea. I think you're a day early, but you've done that deliberately because of the number of events that are on the 8th. So the VLGA's morning tea is on the 7th. And I think that's nearly full too, isn't it? We've raised the bat, Chris, and gone over 50 because I know you love a cricket metaphor, especially when we put it in here. Um, so attendance is good. There's um, a handful of spots left if anyone would like to come along. Going to be hearing from um, uh, Associate Professors Andrea Carson and Professor Lea Rappiner. Um Great speakers, um, really good people in the room. So uh, anyone that's interested, get your reservation in. Excellent. All right, Steve, that's all I've got on my list. Did you have anything extra? 
I think we're done, Chris. I need to go and um, prepare myself for the Salamanca market in the morning. Ah, very good. Tough, tough life. You're going to get to Mona while you're there. I t- well, in fact, as as luck would have it, yes. <laughs> good. Very good. All right, Steve, enjoy, and we'll talk to you next week on the Governance Update. Thanks, Chris. Good to talk. Steve Cooper, Chief of Staff of the VLGA. That's our governance update from VLGA Connect. It's brought to you with our thanks to Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. Stay tuned for more episodes from VLGA Connect coming soon, and we'll see you for governance next week.